the the research that he does. There's a scene, the scene that finally kind of breaks Peter, where he confronts uh, the old man who is. Uh, Possessing Rita. Um, uh, <laughs> I keep trying to find it's the right way to describe it. It's still hard to figure it. out exactly how to say <laughs> who you're talking about. Right. everybody and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And we are jumping into another play today. This play was nominated for Pulitzer Prize, so we're uh, going back to that category of if you've been nominated, you basically won. Um. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I'm sure all the nominatees that have lost the Pulitzer Prize... Would not agree with you. <laughs> or maybe they would, but then the winners of the Pulitzer Prize would say it's not the same thing at all. Right, right. Yeah, it's a status symbol for those who have won it. Uh, Get the chin it, in the air. I won the Pulitzer. Right. I'm, I'm better. But the truth is, you're singled out of like hundreds of plays every year. So way to go for being nominated. This play that was nominated is Prelude to a Kiss by Craig Lucas. Yeah, this is a, a really delightful little play. I ran across it in college, I, th I think in an acting class of all places, and have kept it kind of in the back of my head for a long time. I really enjoyed catching up with it, uh, seeing where I am in relationship to this play that I had read many years ago now, and, and kind of, I don't know, re-understanding my relationship with the play. It's also one of the things that I discovered now that I'm in the world doing theater and don't have just the budget of a college theater to make whatever shows I want, it occurs to me just how producible this play is. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit in our conversation. But that's one of the things I really loved about reading it, as I do when I read any play that feels eminently producible. It's like, I could do this tomorrow if I really tried. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, this is the first time I read it. And that struck me very quickly out of the gate was that, wow, no, I can I could definitely produce this and it'd be really interesting to produce it. It's a it's a fun play for, uh, you know, a local cast to try to do. Absolutely. Before we jump into our conversation about the play, we do want to ask everybody to head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Again, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. Uh, months like this, Magic Month, these series of plays that we talk about that have you know things to do with each other are some of Jackson and I's favorite times during the season. We hope it's yours too. And if you really love what we're doing in the scope of our seasons, but also so during these theme months, I hope you'll head over and support us on patreon.com slash no script podcast. It is a monthly donation that you agree to, but the lowest tier is $1 a month. So really $12 a year. I know a lot of you can afford it. I know a lot of you would give me $12 cash if I asked you for it right now. So I'm asking you for it. Just putting that money in on patreon.com slash no script podcast over there. Once you become a patron, there are patron only posts and there's a community of patrons that you can become involved with uh, even different than the NoScript community itself. Yeah, yeah. So head on over to patreon.com slash NoScript podcast and we will see you over there. Now, back to the script. You stole it! 
You <laughs> stole it. I think that's the first time that you've done it. So that's kind of fun. That's, so this is an important I, day in no script history, if I'm even right. right about that, which I might not be. If I am, <laughs> listeners, you have just witnessed Jackson doing the no, now back to the script voiceover. <laughs> I'm a thief. Um, so I'm going <laughs> So it's magic month, Jackson. Yes, that's right. Before we jump into this play, welcome back to Magic Month. This is our third themed month, and we uh, if you caught our conversation last time about Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, that was the kind of kickoff to our uh, Magic Month. Um, there is no need for you to back up and go and listen to that before this one, but uh, it's there for you if you want to hear it. And uh, we're continuing on into this play that definitely has some magical themes, I would say. Oh, there is magic in this play. And it's fun to visit this play. You know, we, what we talked about last week was that Midsummer Night's Dream might be the most famous play in the theater world that has magic in it. Prelude to a Kiss is not an especially well-known play in the theater world, uh, but definitely is one of those plays that represents something supernatural, that has something really bizarre, some would say magical, happen to the character. So it's exciting to visit kind of different levels of the theater world, too. Yeah, yeah. We're jumping into Supernatural. But before we kind of get into the plot of the play, I do want to give you just a little bit of context for it. This play was originally commissioned for the South Coast Repertory Theater in Costa Mesa, California in 1988. It then had a bit of a two-year either run with them or hiatus after that, and then opened off-Broadway at the Circle Repertory Company on March 14th of 1990. And that production starred Alec Baldwin, Mary Louise Parker, Deborah Monk, and uh, a number of other names that were, were very popular at the time, but those are the big ones that I knew right off the bat. Um, and Mary and Louise that, Parker, we've mentioned a bunch of times by this point as being yeah. in some of those original casts of famous scripts. She has had a heck of a career. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I got to go back. I, I kind of mined at YouTube a little bit, and there's a Tony performance of uh, her, and actually uh, Timothy Hutton is the... Uh, the guy who replaced Alec Baldwin in the on Broadway production, and uh, you can see them performing uh, a scene from this play on on uh, on the Tony stage. So if you if you have a second, go and check that out as well. Um, but yeah, it uh, it performed that year. It was nominated for a uh, best play uh, Tony Award, and then as we said at the beginning, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama that year as well. Uh, in 1992, two years after that production, uh, it was made into a film. And that film starred Alec Baldwin and Meg Ryan. So if you did not see a uh, onstage version and you have seen the play, it's likely that one. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the history of it. Um, not a whole lot of there. There was one more revival in 2003 at the Pacific Resident Theater in Venice, California. And then uh, the Broadway had a revival in 2007 of it as well. Um but yeah, that's 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 kind of the uh, the broad picture of what this play has been doing the last oh goodness, what is it? Almost twenty years now. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's been around for a while, and it's a really delightful story. So it's. Um, it- we would call it maybe a magical romance or a uh, – I think we looked it up online from at least somebody's description of it and they called it a drama. You might be able to call it that. The core plot is about these two characters, Peter and Rita, and uh, they're pretty hard to say those names in conjunction with each other because they have so many similar vowel sounds and they actually make fun of that at one point in the play. But Peter and Rita – 
meet at a party at the beginning of the play. They're strangers and they get introduced at a party. They very quickly fall in love into a really physical, passionate relationship. They very quickly decide to get married. At their wedding, Rita and Peter see this old man. And this old man comes over. Nobody knows who he is and basically says, I'm just here to wish the couple uh, you know, a happy life and could I kiss the bride? And which is it's a weird request strikes me, yep. but they do uh-huh. it. And so Rita kisses him. And when they kiss, their souls switch bodies. Rita's persona gets invested into the old man's body and the old man's identity gets invested into Rita's body. This is not immediately known by anybody except those two people. Because for the next several scenes... Peter is trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with his new wife, his new bride. They're on their honeymoon, and she's not acting like herself. She doesn't believe the same things she used to believe. She's got different habits, different things that she likes, etc. Over the course of being in this new marriage with Rita, he asks his friends what's going on. He gets a lot of kind of newly wed advice, like, you know, things change once you get married. (laughs) And he thinks it's more than that. Eventually, and I'm not totally sure how, he decides that they must have switched bodies. And he finds the old man, who is Rita, at a bar and confirms his belief that this old man is indeed his wife, Rita. Now, the rest of the play deals with the two of them trying to get the bodies switched back. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's this, it's this kind of like... Ah, this almost mythic structure or fable structure. There's some uh, language around fairy tale in this play as well. Um, the the opening. I'll I'll read you the uh, what is included in kind of the intro to this play, at least in my script. Let me just find the page here. Um, it's it's a quotation from uh, the Frog Prince from Brothers Grimm uh, is included at the start of this. Then the king's daughter began to weep and was afraid of the cold frog, whom nothing would satisfy, but he must sleep in her pretty clean bed. Um, and then another clo- quote by, from Howard's End, uh, death destroys a man, but the I- idea of death is what saves him. So these it's it's kind of claiming a fairy tale story. But, but uh, there's there's some differences. Like I'm, I wasn't prepared for it to be a fairy tale story when I started it. It feels like a straight play. Yeah, it feels like a pretty regular old romance drama about these two interesting people who have really specific wants and desires and outlooks on the world. We learn about them. We build our familiarity with them, and then not even that close to the beginning, a third of the way through the play or more, the wedding occurs and the body switch actually happens. I think the quote from the Frog Prince is really interesting because in a lot of ways, this story is at its core a very similar story to the Frog Prince. There's body switching involved, obviously, but then the crucial point, too, of the kiss being supposedly, they think, what actually caused the magic to occur. They, of course, learned through the course of the play that the kiss maybe really wasn't the core magic. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, a, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that because that you kind of get two beats where you get to grapple with this magic, right? And then you just grapple with the ramifications of it. It's the two kisses are kind of the... 
the times when you see the magic happen on stage. It's accompanied by a sound effect or some sort of swelling, whether that be lights or how, however you choose to do that in your production. But yeah, there's there's not a lot of uh, time spent in trying to explain it, except for really just the scene at the end of the play. Yeah, so this is the stage direction for the actual, the first body switch at the wedding. So you can get an idea of what the playwright imagines is occurring at this time in the soundscape and the lights and things like that. In the actual plot of the scene, Rita is kissing the old man. Rita says, my blessings to you. And then this is the stage direction. The old man takes Rita's face in his hands. There is a low rumble which grows in volume as they begin to kiss. Wind rushes through the trees. Leaves fall. No one moves except for Rita, whose bridal bouquet slips to the ground. The old man and Rita separate, and the wind and rumble die down. Yeah. So, it's not... There, there, and then there's there's some following lines where Rita, like refers or I'm sorry the old man now this is where it starts to get a little complicated because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't change the 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 script does not change who is titled as the speaker when this happens um so the old man begins like calling Rita's father daddy and uh calling Peter honey and it's kind of a quick scene and then the, he winds up running off this old man runs off um and some people try to follow him but they can't track him down so I don't know about you, but it took me to act two to really figure out what went on in that scene. Again, this is the first time I've read the play. I didn't interact with the film at all before reading it. And the mystery was retained for me all the way until act two. And maybe that's just my lack of astuteness, but still. <laughs> well, I think that's an interesting point because I knew what happened through the course of the play going in. So I, my understanding of that scene was pretty on point. I knew exactly what was occurring, but that's because I knew going into the story what was occurring. So it doesn't say in that stage direction, the old man and Rita switch bodies. Doesn't say that. So for the reader, and you have to wonder for the audience member, how long does it take for you to catch on to what occurs? The clues, of course, are there. For example, one of the more obvious clues, Rita, right before the kiss, like I said, says, my blessings to you. Then the kiss and the body switch occurs, and Rita again says, and you. But that response, and you, only makes sense if Rita is a different person because she gave the initial, my blessings to you. So in appropriateness, the old man should have responded, and you. But now mm -hmm. it's Rita saying, and you. Yeah. <laughs> There's other clues along the way as well. She uh, loses some of her communist uh, affiliations, or I think she would say socialist um, affiliations. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so they, they go on their honeymoon right away. Like they leave the wedding, get on a plane and go to Jamaica for 10 days or whatever. And just slowly over this time in Jamaica, uh, Peter begins to kind of like poke at some of the things that are weird about her. And at least my initial reaction was again, not a magical one. I thought this was going to be kind of like a, either a multiple personality sort of situation or just something that the time frame of them not knowing each other that long, they dated for two months before getting married, I think is, is what the, the time was. So something about, you know, uh, not knowing someone for very long, you just, he discovers more things about her after they were married. But again, 
Well, I think that's a really good point, Jackson, is that Craig Lucas has built in to the character of Rita some, let's say, convenient realities that help the story to be believable, that help the fact that Peter doesn't immediately go, you're a different person to to come to the fruition. One of them is, as you said, they they haven't known each other very long. They have only been dating for so long. I don't I don't exactly know where the wedding occurs over the course of their relationship, but when they get engaged, they'd only been dating for like six weeks. And once they're married, after they're back from the honeymoon, Peter makes a reference to, uh, to Rita's father. I think he says, we haven't even known each other six months now, referring to he and Rita. So they haven't known each other very long. So that's one really important point, right? Because I've known my wife for many, many, many years now. And if she suddenly changed personalities, I would know. I would immediately go, you're a different person. Now, I might not immediately go, your body was switched with that old man at the wedding. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I would immediately know something has drastically happened, rather than what Peter immediately assumes, which is, well, I guess once you get married, things do change. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. That, 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 That I think that time constraint uh, creates the possibility for a lot more things. Um, and, and it, you know, he tries to like tap, he even tries to kind of tap other people who have known her longer. And the evidence is not forthcoming, really. Her father kind of offers a really non helpful explanation to the situation. Well, <laughs> her like, parents are another one of those kind of convenient realities. It's built into who Rita is that her parents don't have much of an idea of what her real life is like. We know, first of all, that she was a communist slash socialist for a long time and that they don't know that about her at all. So that, of course, lends itself to wonder, well, what else don't they know about her? We know that she lied to them about how long she and Peter had been together. So, of course, you ask the question, what else is she lying about? And Peter makes that accusation much later in the play that, look, you don't really know Rita at all. I've only been with Rita, you know, so long, but I think I know her better than you. So that's another one of those convenient realities that... Because her parents don't know her that well, some of the only people who would be able to, you know, get with Peter, agree with Peter about that something has changed, don't have any real basis for doing that. Right. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about Rita's perspective then before we kind of get into once they re-meet for a while. We don't get to spend too much time with Rita after the body snatch moment until we're returned to him, uh, to Peter meeting the old man in the bar. But like, that was a fascinating just like question for me and would be a fascinating question for the actor. Like, what is, what, what, what headspace is Rita in when she is the old man in the bar after, you know, two weeks of someone else being on your honeymoon and you living with a family that you never were never never knew for a long time. There's a couple of really cool small details, almost throwaway lines, but I think they lend so much to our understanding of what it's like to be Rita moved into the body of an old man. There's a great moment when they leave the bar and they're going back to Peter's apartment and they're talking. And she says, she basically has to say, slow down. I get short of breath now. I can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's complicated then as well because we discover that the old man is is dying. 
pretty pretty soon after that scene, uh, he's he uh, he has like a, a lung cancer. I think is is one of the things that he has, and he's dying of that in a short amount of time. So suddenly, there's a time limit put on this as well, right? Rita, as the old man, is dying soon. <laughs> <laughs> right, the stakes so. are really very high in this play. There's this base level stakes that Peter kind of establishes right away. As soon as, so what what happens is that Peter and the old man go back to their apartment hoping to catch Rita's body, which is the old man's persona, in the apartment and get it switched. But when Peter gets back, he discovers that Rita's body, the old man's persona, has moved out, moved back in with Rita's parents, claiming that she wants to divorce him. Ultimately, that's because Peter has kind of figured it out and, and confronted her a little bit, confronted the old man in Rita's body. But anyway, once they get back <laughs> to that apartment and Peter's hopes of getting this immediately solved now that he's figured it out are dashed, he's says something to the old man like, I, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not attracted to you. How can we have a marriage where there's no base level reality where the romantic part of our relationship where I love you and am attracted to you doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. But that's kind of ties back to an earlier comment that is made that, you know, it, it kind of feels like almost a... Uh, a cliche moment of like, will you love me when I'm old and I don't, uh, and I'm not pretty anymore or, or, or something like that. And the, the, you know, the, the right away answer is, um, is yes, of course I will. Um, but, but this kind of fable asks the questions, well, what if, it, what if that was now? Like, what if you are not equals in that? Is your love strong enough? <laughs> All right, so, for, so for Peter's a straight man, right? So he's attracted to women. So the playwright takes this potential fable situation where Rita, right before their wedding, says, will you love me when I'm this old woman and I'm not attractive anymore and I have a mustache and I'm all droopy and et cetera, et cetera. She goes through some description in detail. And right. uh, Peter says, of course I will. And so some of, you're right, some of what the play does is say, okay, so what if that was now? But let's push it even further and make Rita no longer a woman even. Now it's an mm -hmm. old, old man. Will you still love her? And that question that I asked right earlier too, Jackson, when Peter says, I'm not attracted to you anymore, how can we have a marriage if I'm not attracted to you? That becomes some of the question too, is how is it possible for love and affection and marriage to exist when this kind of base level attraction to each other doesn't exist? In that way, this play kind of goes deep fast all of a sudden, and it does it sneakily, too. Like, you don't know in, in the middle of this kind of heist that is happening, right, where the, where, the, where the old man with Rita inside of him and Peter are, like, living together trying to construct a way to get Rita with the old man inside of her um, into the room so that they can make the switch again. There's, like, this, like, daily rhythm that they end up going into where they are, like, having all of the parts of marriage besides the physical side of marriage as, right. and, as, as and part they of their are a really interesting couple to try that experiment on what is marriage like without the sex yes but also without the attraction and the passion of being sexually interested in your partner right so what's a marriage like without that completely and they are a really interesting couple to try that on because they are a very sexual couple they're a mm -hmm. really physically passionate couple that's a lot of what their early relationship is based on there's this 
lovely, wonderful, beautiful little scene where after they've met at the party, Peter goes and sees her at the bar where she works and they decide they're going to go upstairs together. And what could be just a kind of a hookup scene ends up having some kind of interesting deep connection moments as they prelude their first kiss and sexual encounter. But then we know from mostly Peter's narration that a lot of their relationship as it continues on is these kind of wild, sexually inflamed, passionate exploits. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This that, that it was such a defining part of them falling in love to begin with, and now it's kind of gone. Also, though, we only have Peter's perspective, which is which is interesting because I I, I, I I lament that there isn't a perspective of Rita in this because Rita is still attracted to Peter, assumedly, in this old man's body. And she's just not acting on that attraction for most of the play. And we don't we don't get the internal monologue of Rita. It's it's kind of all from Peter's perspective. So that dynamic is kind of floating around in there, too. Uh, and and how, how Rita is grappling with that. That's a really interesting point, Jackson, that weirdly the play is told from Peter's perspective as if this is something that happens to Peter. His wife is magically transformed into an old man. And I think we're supposed to identify and follow with Peter. He's the primary narrator. He's the primary lens through which the play occurs because you're exactly right. Rita in the old man's body would still carry that love and attraction for Peter who hasn't changed at all. But that's not a perspective we really get or are even really at all spoken about. There's really not even, Rita doesn't even really get a point in the old man's body where she says, well, I'm still attracted to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of that. I mean, it's it's a it's an almost an every in this case, uh, it's an every man structure, <laughs> right? Like Peter plays this person who this thing happens to one. And this is kind of an old structure. It's also a structure that is very uh, steeped in the patriarchy. So so it's it's in some ways it's not surprising. In other ways, uh, I, I lament that we do not have Rita's portion of this story. I think I think in, if this play were to be done again or written again, I would be excited to to grapple with both sides of the story. And then of course there's the other side of the sexual attraction equation which is hinted at even more than hinted at but maybe never really so brutally described, probably thank goodness, is this idea that this old man is in Rita's body <laughs> and they definitely have a bunch of sex. They have their honeymoon, yeah. <laughs> and it at one point, Peter, once he's back at work from the honeymoon, honeymoon is is talking to Taylor, who's his, his friend. He's the one who introduced them. He's the best man at the wedding, et cetera. He's kind of a minor character that appears a couple of times. And he he's trying to grapple with this change that's going on in Rita. So he talks to Taylor. And one of the things he asks Taylor is, look, have you ever been with someone in bed and they don't like any of the stuff they used to like. In fact, they only are doing some of the more traditional stuff, and it's, <laughs> it, which is a change for Peter because, as we said, he and Rita's relationship has been kind of sexually ad adventurous, let's say, right. <laughs> up to that point. And now he's with this old, old man. Mm -hmm. Not knowing it, thinking that it's still his, his young wife who he had this whole relationship with. 
Right. Yeah, that dynamic is, uh, it doesn't get a whole lot. It's heavily hinted at, but like that awkwardness, there, there is no moment, there's there's no, oh my gosh, moment where these characters go like, what have I been doing these past couple months? Um, but you assume that it's there, right? The, the play almost kind of gets a nice bow on it at the end and some of the long-standing ramifications are not dealt with on a very realistic level because it's a fairy tale. It's a, like, a, it's there to do a point or make a point and and then we we all can go home at the end but you're absolutely right that this like um <laughs> the aspect of you were with someone else for for months <laughs> as you were continuing on your physical relationship with them is 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 something that would hang out with these characters for a while and the old man in Rita's body his perspective is kind of an interesting one too. We think because we're following Peter's perspective and this is what Peter believes for a long time that the old man has has caused this magical body switching to happen intentionally. That this is what the old man wanted to be young again or to be a woman or you know whatever. And we learn, at least the old man claims at the very end of the play in the denouement and the wrap up that that's not actually true that this happened uh, totally by accident or by mystery, basically. The old man didn't really plan for this, didn't intend for this, didn't cause this to happen in any way. So what in the world causes this old man to think he needs to pretend to be Rita? Yeah, I mean, some of to that... To the point of having a bunch of sex with Peter. Right. <laughs> and not only that, but saying things too. Like, he lives with him for a while... And we'll say things like, I want to have your child, right? Like that, like that's a, that's part of their like honeymoon sequence is, is him saying, I want to have your child. We should Which continue Which is especially important because Rita's always said she didn't like, she didn't want children. Right. It's a big hint that, that in fact, this is not Rita. Um, so there is some, I, there's something in those lines of the old man in Rita at the end of the play that, um that wind up kind of talking about, I think, desire. Um, desire is an important part of the magic of this play, and not not uh, sexual desire in this case, but just, like, uh, wanting something so much. <laughs> yeah, kind of like it, a, a core yearning for something to be different. Yeah, yeah, and that, that plays into the magic of this play. He describes how when he saw them getting married, he just happens across this wedding. He's on a walk. He happens across the wedding. Well, yeah, and, and, and the walk is important too because he's like trying to run away from his life. The right. old man we learn tragically has recently lost his wife, his longtime partner, and things are going downhill. He's also learned that he's going to die within the year. And so in kind of an attempt to escape all of what's going on with him, he just leaves. He, he, I, think they're, I think the family lives maybe in Manhattan, and this takes place across the river in New Jersey or something like that. The old yeah. man travels a distance to just kind of walk and escape and stumbles upon the wedding. Right. And he describes kind of looking at them and just like picturing what it would be like to be them. And he starts by describing what it would be like to be Peter, but then he goes on to describing what it would be like to be Rita. And and this this wondering what it's like to be someone newly married, a woman newly married, and 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 that like wondering and then wondering combined with the desire to kind of like uh experience something new again. 
seems to create this magic that happens. And if you view that as his primary goal or like suddenly this wish gets granted, um, if you view that as why he wanted it in the first place, it kind of makes sense that he would then like try to live into it. He's like, oh my gosh, I actually get to try to experience what this is like. And and then the kind of acting that he winds up doing, the the research that he does, there's a scene, the scene that finally kind of breaks Peter where he confronts uh, the old man who is uh, possessing Rita. Um, uh, <laughs> I keep trying to find it's the right way to describe it. It's still hard to figure it. out exactly how to say <laughs> who you're talking about. Right. But when he confronts him about this... Um, he the the old man has done like research on Rita, right? He's read journals, he's looked at pictures. So he's of like, course, that's another one of the convenient things about Rita, right? Is that because she's in ins- she has insomnia, she's had a long time trouble sleeping. One of the ways she's dealing with that is by journaling very in a lot of detail, and so the old man in Rita's body has access to all of Rita's journals and is able to kind of learn enough about her to pretend. Right. But yeah, yeah. So so his intention is very strong. Like that takes work. <laughs> takes commitment to to a goal to try to bring that about. So this is what the old man says. This is after their bodies have been switched back. This is the old man talking about his wife and what has been going on with him enough that, that this is why that deep yearning to be Rita existed inside of him. So he says, don't you see my wife and daughter had a bond. I loved them both so much. I wanted to eat them alive. Rita in her own body now says, I saw their photographs, your mom. You just wanted them back the way they were, the old man in his own body says. And women cry, you think it feels good. Rita, yes, it does. Old man, women make a life inside their body, and that life comes out and holds on to them, clings to them, calls them from school and says, I'm sick, ma, come and pick me up. That baby is theirs for life. Where are they now? My wife, my mother. So you can kind of see how that would be something that he'd want to experience, right? (laughs) Yeah, he seems to have, because of the tragedy that's befallen him, he has this desire to create new life, to, I don't know if it's a sense of, because I've lost my wife and my mother, I want to experience the world experience what they experienced as a way of dealing with that loss, as a way of being a mother in the way that both my wife and mother were, or if there's a different, more deeper level of maybe the old man has had a long time yearning to be a woman and to experience life from a woman's perspective. That's one of those parts of this story that reading it in 2019 lends a little bit of a different perspective, right? The other part of it is that some of the comedy of the play plays on this idea that all along, Peter has been sleeping with Rita, who's actually a man, and now Peter is married to this old man who's actually Rita and doesn't want to kiss this man. So there's some mm-hmm. like some of that homophobia, basically, that exists in the kind of the core comedy of the play does not lend itself real well to a 2019 reading. But one of the things that does is this sense of what has this old man's life been like? Has he lived a life as a person who, you know, desired to be trans to live life as a woman and hasn't been able to? Hmm, yeah, that's 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 an excellent point. Yeah, and that that, you know, 
kind of being granted that that wish for a moment <laughs> would be a would you make would make sense why he then you know won't in, in the knowledge that Peter has discovered the 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 switch why he would still fight for it like it goes beyond it goes beyond just like a want it's like a fulfillment of something that is that is deeper um so so as long as we're right in this moment of the play this is where the switch back happens right this is at the end um and and the two beats that kind of happen in this are they try like a basically just a forced kiss right like uh like similar to a princess and the frog sort of situation where just like we kiss and it's done right right and so this fact- is where um they they think they understand the magic system. Those of you who listened last week to the Midsummer episode know that one of the things we've been talking about is a way that Brandon Sanderson, who's a fantasy novelist, talks about magic systems in that the two kind of versions of a magic system are one that's very rule-oriented and where characters can succeed or fail in their goals by manipulating the known rules of a magic system. And then there's a magic system that's a more mystery and characters succeed or fail in their goals Goals totally unrelated to the magic system. They just exist in a world of magic, and so magical things happen. This play walks this world where the characters, I think they believe for a long time that they exist in a rule-oriented magic system. So you're right. They try this forced kiss because they think they can succeed in their goal of switching back by manipulating the known rules of their magic system. Right. But in fact... They don't know the rules about it. It does not work. There is something uh, other that needs to happen in this to 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 make this switch. And I think again, it switches back to desire because the tactic switches for them. Peter continues to try to like force things, right? Like he's got a knife to his throat. He's gonna start, you know, <laughs> causing physical injury if he doesn't reverse what he did. And we discover that in fact the old the old man uh, slash Rita cannot reverse what he did. He is uh he's he's kind of he doesn't know how it happened. It's not his magic or something like that. It happened to him as well as we've discussed. And then Rita, inside the old man, her tactic changes she kind of starts to convince and and um empathize with the plight of the other (laughs) and and that starts to lead to this kind of unification of desire between them again to switch yeah so after the forced kiss fails the old man in rita's body starts to tell his side of the story, which is, we've talked a little bit about it. He's on this walk to escape his life, just came across this wedding, and he notices these two young people, and this is what he says, what did it matter what I did? I wish to God I were that young bridegroom starting out, or the bride, for that matter. Look at the shine in those eyes. Later on, Rita, in the old man's body, as they're having this discussion, says, I remember now, it was you. Oh God, it was your eyes shining back and you kissed me and let me be over there please let me skip to the end of all this hard part i wanted to be you for one second of one day what would it be like to just be and then they start to go back and forth in their dialogue describing what the desire was to be the other person mhm and kind of the the what on the other side is of worth to the other um and 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 in that back and forth 
there is, uh, again, the magic begins to swell, right? The wind rises or the sound rises, however you choose to do that. And they're kind of bounced back into their own bodies. Yeah, so they do these back and forths. You know, they say things like, old man in Rita's body will say, I'll kiss the bride, I'll be the bride. Old man, Rita in old man's body says, my whole life would be behind me. They go back and forth and back and forth. Eventually, they say one thing together. And this thing is probably the core of how this magic operates. At least, you know, it's, it's a pretty significant line. This is what they say together. Nothing to lose. All you've got to do is want it bad enough. Then the stage direction of the magical description happens. And this time, Craig Lucas does tell us in the stage directions that they switch back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And notably, no kiss in this one. So, like... No kiss. Yeah, it's it's just the 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 direction for it is their eyes lock and things begin happening to them. It's a uni- again a unifying where they they say a line together, their eyes lock, and this change happens. So that's that's kind of a that lends itself takes itself out of the rule based magic system, right? We're we're now into like something is asking them to prove something to bring about what they want to happen, for this wish fulfillment to happen. Right, so we know now that we exist in a mystery-based magic system. And one of those core elements, like we've described, of mystery-based magic systems is the characters have to go on this journey, achieve or fail at their goals, absent of the magic. So because now we know that they couldn't succeed in switching bodies by manipulating known rules of the magic, we have to ask, what did they achieve or fail in their goals absent the magic that makes the story come to a conclusion and a satisfying conclusion for the audience, even though we don't know exactly what happened in the magic? So because we don't know that, we have to have a different understanding of what happened to the characters that become satisfying. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what what do you think? Do we, I mean, I don't know that we, uh, we talked a little bit about how, how it ties up pretty quick at the end, um, and, and, and how that's a pretty typical fairy tale structure of, like, ending quickly, um, but I don't know that we necessarily need a long denouement after this in some ways. Like, it's kind of the journey is, is the point of this play, not necessarily the, the moral at the end. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you the moment that I think the characters make a pretty significant jump, especially the character of Peter. And again, we've talked a little bit about that it's a little bit problematic that the the story we're following is Peter's story, especially when there's so many more interesting possible stories. But, <laughs> but following still. the play that we're in, which is Peter's play, this is something that happens to Peter. And what happens to Peter is that his young wife, who he's, he's passionately in love with, has magically transformed into an old man. There's a moment as they're plotting what they think is a manipulation of the magic rules where Peter makes a pretty significant step as a character. They're on the phone. This is they've, they've lived together for a little while now, Peter and the old man. The old man in Rita's body having moved back in with Rita's parents, again, pretending that she's mad at Peter and that she wants to get a divorce all the while knowing that she's left him because Peter's figured out that she's not actually Rita. Anyway, Peter and the real Rita in the old man's body are living together in their apartment, and they've had to learn these different patterns of life now. 
And as they're plotting this, there's this moment where Peter realizes that he still loves Rita. And he, he goes to try to kiss the old man to tell Rita that he's in love with her, and he just can't quite bring himself to do it. Then later in the scene, after some other developments have occurred, he's, he's able to kiss, to communicate his love through a physical reaction, this kiss. And I think that that, to kiss this old man that really is Rita, I think that's a significant step for the character of Peter. In this longer, deeper question of the play, which is, what if your the person that you were in love with doesn't look like the person that you were in love with at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that step is definitely kind of the the growth of Peter's character throughout this play. And I think you're right to say that this, I mean, this play is is Peter's play. It's just the way it's written, despite despite how interested we are in 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 the the other. Uh, the other characters and their viewpoint. This this play follows Peter's journey, and uh, and and that is that is the question: Can he still love Rita even when she doesn't look the way that she that that he fell in love with her? And and that's and 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 so that that beat it comes quite a bit before the end of the play. We 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 kind of learn that about him. We we see the maturation of his journey early on into the play and is then do you think do you think the transition at the end is thus more of a denouement than a climax or well i i think it's it's not the climax of the character's journey it might be hmm. the moment where the story changes irreversibly anymore the bodies are switched back things are made right but i don't think it is the specific height of any one character's journey so Peter has this moment where he's able to kiss and communicate his, his continuing love for Rita in the old man's body just right before the scene where the old man in Rita's body shows up and they try to kidnap her and they try the forced kiss and eventually everything changes back. So it's, it's near enough to the end of the play that I think there might be some argument in Peter's journey whether or not the bodies actually change back is a little bit of denouement because he's come over the hump of realizing he can still love, still have physical affection for Rita, no matter what she looks like. But the other characters, I think, go on a similar journey, and there are moments where they have their own realizations. One of the accusations that's leveled against Rita, the real Rita, for a lot of the play is that she's scared of life. You know, she has this career aspirations of being a graphic artist, but is so scared to actually get started that all she's doing is working at a bar, which, you know, bartenders are awesome, but that's not what she actually wants to do. She's only doing that job because she's scared to start her life again. She's scared to tell her parents about the real her. That accusation that she doesn't really want to enjoy life is leveled at her quite a bit. And now she's living in the body of this old man who's going to die within the year. And I think that that causes some character change in her too, causes her to come to a kind of realization that's an impactful, important one. That That is supported by some of her last lines in the play, which are, I'm here, I'm not afraid. And then again, I'm not afraid. So she's kind of moved from... Uh, being accused of being afraid, at least, and and kind of taking actions based on that, to out of out of this this arguably terrifying experience at times, she's developed a new sense of of bravery and ability to grapple with life as a result of it. So, what do you think about the old man then, the real old man who ends up living in Rita's body? 
He has a journey. What Do you think that he comes to some realizations? He certainly doesn't seem sad to be changed back. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, he kind of gets the... I mean, he, he kind of gets the best ride of the play, right? <laughs> like, he's the most aware of what happened of anyone in the play um, and and gets the, you know, the benefit of having his, you know, wish and 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 a better state in life fulfilled right like he's his wish is fulfilled he's younger he's not dying um and any any fights for it for a long time but you're right it, that that's honestly one of the kind of the weaker parts for me in this play is is how quickly his goal shifts at the end he seems to right away when it's clear that peter has somehow managed to get him in the room with uh rita in the old man's body um, he switches fast to like, now nah, hang on kids, I think is the line. Hang on kids, we can work this out or something like that. And he, he switches to this kind of, I will tell you my story structure as opposed to kind of fighting tooth and nail to keep hold of this new life that he has. Yeah, he, he's definitely fighting to continue to pretend to be Rita, to play the part so well that he can stay all the way up through when he, as Rita, decides to leave Peter after Peter's confronted him, her, and uh, move back in with Rita's family, still pretending to be Rita. But then there's this whole journey that he apparently goes on living with Rita's parents that were only given the most basic, brief introduction to what might have gone on there, ultimately concluding with the old man saying the idea of living forever is not so good. Hmm, so clearly yeah. even the old man has had some kind of a change through the course of this that has given him new insight about his real life and his true body and has provided him with some, you know, hill to crest. But one of the, I agree, one of the weaker parts of the play, probably because we are so narrowly confined to Peter's perspective, is that we don't really get to go on that journey with the old man. You know, this play is is like the play version of, of first-person narrative. I yeah, think yeah. every scene we see through Peter's eyes, we don't get to see characters who are not interacting with Peter. So when when the playwright has decided that Rita's going to leave, either the old man in Rita's body is going to leave and not be in that part of the play, and then come back having gone on some journey enough that he and her body is ready to go back to his own body and pleased about it even though his old body is dying i mean that's a long journey to go on being willing and ready to return to your dying body that's interesting but we don't get to follow it right we just see him see him ready at the end and in some ways you know the brain kicks into i will make this work mode right so so in some ways it's like okay so he kind of has a a um a realization that you know some punishment would need to be had by the end of this for for everything that's happening and he still got to do something that he really wanted to do like he wanted to know you know structure uh, literally what they say is we just want to know what the other one was like for a day and that that wish is certainly fulfilled throughout the play and it kind of makes sense that now okay he probably wouldn't want to just leave his daughter and grandchild alone, right? And and just like fade away. Like upon reflection, perhaps it is best to go back to my body. And I guess it's kind of mean for me to stick this person <laughs> in my dying body and just say peace out. <laughs> I don't so, know though. Craig Lucas has set up that old man's body to be dying. I mean, like yeah. within a year dying. So while I agree that there might be some realization that it, you know, well, maybe I should return to my old life, 
it, it's really the really the old man is willing and ready to return not to his old life but to death. Mm-hmm. He's willing to embrace death, and that why the old man is suddenly willing and able and ready to embrace death is not really a journey we get to go on as the audience. Right. We're we're privileged to. In fact, you know, um, there's a there's sort of a trend a little bit now to write kind of alternate sequels or new character perspectives of famous plays like uh, Tom Stoppard. This isn't a new play, but Tom Stoppard's famous play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstein are dead, provides new insight into these side characters. Lucas Nath wrote The Doll's House Part Two. I I think that there might be a world where some playwright could write the old man in Rita's body. What actually <laughs> occurred to her? I mean, that could be a whole play. Yeah, Knowing that absolutely. you're going to die, being given a new young body, and then by the end of that journey, wanting to go back to your dying body. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It certainly would be a good series of monologues. Like, <laughs> it'd be an ample opportunity to write something like that. Let's let's return real quick in our, in our kind of last beats of the play to this theme of fairy tale. Um, and 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 magic as we're as we are in magic month might as well uh, hit that one more time. Uh, we've talked about the magic structure a little bit. Um, the end of the play I talked about the beginning of the play being introduced by that quote from the princess and the frog. The end of the play is this delightful hidden phrase throughout the play um, that uh, Peter uh, speaks Dutch and uh, and he has introduced Rita to. Uh, a saying that uh, is like your teeth are very white or something like that. Um, and and another phrase that he hasn't told her the whole play, he, he doesn't translate it for her. And uh, the very last lines of the play, she finally asks him to translate it for her. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Dutch for y'all. But, um, <laughs> but uh, the translation is the better to eat you with. So the... The uh, the question or the the statement before that she knows of is your teeth are very white, and then the answer is the better to eat you with. So this is a call and response in Dutch that they've had since their very first date, and Peter has told her since the first date that the first part of the call and response is your teeth are very white, but he has not told her what her response actually means, but she's been saying it in Dutch. Mm-hmm. Now, we know this phrase, right? Like, this is a familiar phrase to us. It's from Little Red Riding Hood, right? Again, another fairy tale. And one that involves people stepping into other people's roles, right? The wolf is disguised as grandma in this scene. Um, so, so again, like, this, this last scene of the play is really kind of hitting home. This is a fairy tale. Well, I'm interested in that, Jackson. Do you think it is an Easter egg to those of us who spend enough time studying the play and, and knowing enough about fairy tales to catch that, well, everybody should get that it's from the Big Bad Wolf story, uh, the Little Red Riding Hood story, I'm sorry, but do enough people catch that there's a connection between those two stories that somebody is pretending to be an old person of the opposite gender in both that fairy tale and this play? Do you think it's an Easter egg for those of us clever enough to catch it? <laughs> or do you think there's a deeper suggestion there? Hmm. It's a good question. I'll I'll uh, hit the shallow one and say that I think it is the Easter egg. Um, because the play does not open with a quote from The Princess and the Frog, 
right? This, this, the play itself is not bracketed. The written play is bracketed with these two quotes. So you could go, I think you could conceivably go this whole play going, what? <laughs> Why am I watching this? <laughs> Right? How does this work in the world? Why am I watching a play about people switching bodies? And then at the very end, you get this translation of something that's been being said through the whole play, right? It's actually a, a, a common theme, something that is repeated over and over. And at the very end, the opportunity is there for you to say, oh, this is a fairy tale. And fairy tales, I, I, I know how to grapple with fairy tales because I've some of us have been trained in receiving fables and tear and tales as children. Like we know how to then process this information as we leave. We're still making the connections. This is the last line. Our synapses are firing. We're connecting the dots and the play makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I, I agree that it's somewhat Easter eggy, but I also agree with, with what you ended up saying, which was that the, Dutch, especially once you learn what the Dutch means, exists to help you help you understand that what you've witnessed is more fairy tale than stage drama, right? It's it's a stage drama of a fairy tale, and what do fairy tales often have? Confusing, often gray morals. What exactly is the ultimate moral of this play is pretty gray. But they also have simple magic systems, which are rooted a lot in mystery and where the characters have to make journeys of their own in a world of magic rather than manipulate the magic system as part of the journey. Lots of the characteristics of this play fit that fairy tale mold really well. But what does that mean then, Jackson? What is, I mean, what does it mean that this is a fairy tale? So I know that. I've watched the whole play. I caught the reference at the end and I said, oh, the Big Bad Wolf, this is kind of like a fairy tale. Okay. Uh, what do you think the audience or the reader is supposed to connect with, take home with them with that knowledge? Hmm. I think I'm going to cop out and say that uh, <laughs> this play should have Puck's monologue from Midsummer Night's Dream at the end. Uh, <laughs> I love that. If these shadows have offended, think about this and all is mended. Right. Because this is actually kind of, in, in many ways, functionally, a, the same play as Midsummer. right? There's confusion. People are wandering through as a result of things. The only difference is we're not behind the curtain in this play. We don't get to see the fairies kind of conniving. We go, don't get to see whatever magical force is waiting behind the curtain at a wedding, seeing an old person look at a woman and say, gosh, what it would be like to be in their body. And a woman saying, gosh, what it would be like to be that old man at this party and no one knows who they, is, who they are. We don't see Oberyn saying to Puck, hey, switch those two around. <laughs> But but in but that is kind of what is happening. We just the curtain is over our eyes for this play. I think I really like that idea that we're watching the same sort of story as Midsummer, where there are clearly these external machinations going on, but we only see the front side of the curtain. However, 
where the play departs from Midsummer, and one of the things we talked about last week was that in Midsummer, it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what char- what journey the human characters are on. It seems like they get rescued from having to make any real conclusions or leaps in their characters' lives by the deus machina of the fairies. Whereas in Prelude to a Kiss, they are not rescued until each individual person has gone over the hill of realizing something something about themselves and their lives and the direction of their lives. So as sacrilegious it might be to say, in some ways, Prelude to a Kiss is a more full version of Midsummer, perhaps because it leans away from needing to spend so much time and energy conveying the external Mm, machinations and instead (laughs) leans into the private lives of the characters. That's a really good point. That the that the because that is the difference, right? That we we talked last week about how confused all the characters are and how powerless they are. Apparently, these characters need to do something else beyond just just react. Uh, we we've we've already talked about that in the last scene, right? Like they need there needs to be some intention behind this this transfer back into their own bodies. I think that's a great choice or a great great line of thought for that. What what do you, let me turn the question back on you then in that. In that, what what are the what are is, is there one thing that we can crystallize from these characters' journey at the end of the play that we take away as audiences that this this fairy tale teaches us? Well, right. There's not a cl- crystal clear moral. I don't think fairy tales are different than parables, mm-hmm. and that's important. Or they're different than moral anecdotes. Fairy tales are much more gray. And that's kind of why they exist. In fact, if you read the Grimm's versions of the fairy tales, they're even far more gray than the Disney versions we've all heard. They're (laughs) very gray. And this play has a lot of gray in it. But I do think this there is this core moral uh, question about love, which is the one we've been talking about. What happens when your partner isn't the partner you thought was your partner all this time. Is is love, is affection, is friendship, is relationship enough to sustain that, that important part of your life even when it seems like so much has changed? And to put it in more specific terms, will Peter still love Rita even when she's an old man? And is... Is Rita's body the only thing that Peter was interested in the whole time, right? Because that's the other part of the equation. The reason why this body switching is so important rather than just magically transforming Rita into an old man is because Peter then has the opportunity to choose, well, everything about Rita has changed, but she's still hot and young and I still get, you know, I still get to have sex with this hot young girl. Is that enough for my marriage and my satisfaction? And he says no. The person I was in love with was a deeper person. And then he's given the opportunity to prove that when he meets that deeper person in this old man's body. So it's hard to pull a a very clear moral anecdote from that because, like, I don't really believe my wife's going to switch bodies with an old man (laughs) any one of these days. But there is kind of a core moral journey of discovering that our love and our relationships exist at a deeper level than just our attraction to the way someone looks. There's a deeper persona that that is truly what relationship is built on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has it has less mythic ramifications to our lives, but none less poignant ramifications to our lives. 
Yes, absolutely. I, I think that's probably all the time we have for Prelude to a Kiss. There's a couple other things that I, that I would have loved to talk about, and that is true every week. <laughs> right, uh, right. Plays are awesome. This plays awesome. And like we said, eminently producible. Simple sets. Yeah. Not a lot of crazy technical requirements or anything like that. Uh, a nice large cast for a, for a modern romance drama. And mm-hmm. lots of fun parts. Yeah, plenty of good parts to play. Um, but this conversation, fortunately, does not have to end here. We would like to continue this conversation with you online on our social media sites. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The username on all of those are at Podcast. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those if you want to continue this conversation. If there is something that you took away from this story that we did not get to cover, or if you just kind of want to talk about some of the individual kind of fun scenes, we, we were pretty meta, I think for a good chunk of this this conversation and there are just really kind of fun scenes in this play that would be a lot of fun to play so if you have more to talk about find us on all those sites we'd love to keep having this conversation with you if you like this episode, if you're liking Magic Month, if you've liked some of the other work that we've done, one of the great ways you can support us, besides giving us your money, which we'd love, but besides <laughs> that, you can also share this episode on your social media, tell your friends about it. We are just amazed every week as the listenership grows and grows, and so that's been awesome, but you can help us continue to grow. Please tell folks about it. If you like scripts, you'd probably know people who like scripts. You can find our podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And again, that information is not for you. You've already found the podcast. That information is for you to tell people how to find the podcast. And uh, we're on all those places. We also post a link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook. And get excited for next week as we continue Magic Month. We are doing Into the Woods, which I have been wanting to do for pretty much every season of this because there are there are some questions that I want Jacob to answer. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Into the Woods will be a fun one. It's fun to do Magic Month in October. You know, Into the Woods yeah. is going to come out right around Halloween, right that week before Halloween. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting, too. I've been having a lot of fun in Magic Month. I'm looking forward to our last two scripts. We'll see you then. Until then, this is No Script the Podcast. I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Ann Christensen. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I started that and then I was like, I'm not the one who says this. How does this go?